You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Notes on ransomware and privateering, Conti's barking at its victims, someone's exploiting billing software, and Black Matter repeated some coding errors its dark side predecessor committed. GCHQ suggests that the UK will undertake a more assertive imposition of costs on cyber gangs. The US State Department will re-establish its cyber bureau, software supply chain cyber espionage, and what can be done about it. Ben Yellen on school laptop privacy concerns. Our guest is David White of Axio to discuss ransomware preparedness and some more scare notes for Halloween. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, October 26, 2021. There's more out today on the ransomware front. The Conti gang, whose smugly self-righteous protestations that they're actually the good guys. That's it. That's right. Practically freedom fighters or something like that. Whose valediction forbidding law enforcement we heard about yesterday may have changed its business model. Krebs on Security has a discussion of the Conti ransomware gang's decision to sell either victims' data or access to victims' networks. It's not clear which exactly, but they want the victims to know that those who don't pay are in big trouble. The gang recently posted a note that reads, in part, quote, If you are a client who declined the deal and did not find your data on Cartel's website or did not find valuable files, this does not mean that we forgot about you. It only means that data was sold and only therefore it did not publish in free access. End quote. The Hoods go on to say, quote, We are looking for a buyer to access the network of this organization and sell data from their network. End quote. So the communique, or threat, Conti posted is ambiguous with respect to what precisely is being offered for sale. Are they selling data or are they getting into the access broker business? But is this tactical ambiguity, or is it a why-not-do-both strategy, or is it simply poor idiomatic control? Maybe all three. Whatever the case may be, Conti hopes to punish uncooperative victims. Publicly naming the companies whose access one hopes to sell would seem to be self-defeating. 
One possible explanation might be that the gang is itself feeling the hot breath of law enforcement on its neck. Emsisoft, for one, speculated to Krebs on security that Conti may be considering an exit. Conti's shift in strategy comes days after the gang issued a self-righteous and puerile valediction for our evil, taken down last week by a coordinated international law enforcement action. In Vice's account, Conti argues that ransomware is good, somehow, but their argument amounts to little more than an implausible denial. The U.S., you see, is really pushing ransomware when it takes down criminal servers. We suppose that's one way of looking at it. Other ransomware operators are exploiting known vulnerabilities in bill-quick billing software to distribute ransomware, bleeping computer reports. Huntress Labs has an account of the vulnerabilities. Reports indicate that some are fixed. Fixes are in progress for others. Security firm Emsisoft has been able to take advantage of slovenly coding by the Black Matter ransomware gang to damage the gang's operations by enabling victims to recover files without paying ransom. Black Matter represents a rebranding of the Dark Side gang, and Emsisoft found that the reorganized gang had repeated a coding error that its predecessor had committed. That error enabled Emsisoft to quietly help Black Matter victims. While Emsisoft kept its discovery of the flaw quiet, others who came across it did not, and Black Matter upped its game and fixed the problem. But Emsisoft says it continues to keep an eye out for other criminal missteps, and it encourages its colleagues and partners to do the same. The UK, normally tighter-lipped about such matters than its transatlantic cousins, has made public representations to the effect that Britain's relatively young national cyber force, established last year, would undertake offensive cyber operations to disrupt the infrastructure used by criminal gangs. GCHQ Director Fleming, speaking virtually at yesterday's Cypher Brief conference, indicated that more needed to be done to impose costs on criminal actors and that the national cyber force could be expected to play a role in doing so. The U.S. State Department, the Wall Street Journal reports, will reestablish its cybersecurity bureau to enhance its ability to coordinate diplomatic measures in support of national cyber policy, The Wall Street Journal reports that Secretary of State Blinken is expected to announce the newly reconstituted office later this week. Security firm Mandiant, which has been tracking software supply chain attacks of the kind Microsoft announced at the beginning of the week, has offered advice on how organizations can remediate attacks and harden their systems against the threat. Whatever successes law enforcement, intelligence, and military organizations have recently enjoyed against Russian ransomware privateers, there seems to have been no corresponding success against Russian intelligence agencies. The Hill sees the high op-tempo and relatively brazen Russian cyber espionage directed toward the compromise of software supply chains as evidence that U.S. efforts at deterrence have so far not succeeded in restraining activity of the Russian government proper in cyberspace. Espionage is more difficult to deter than is kinetic warfare. Mandiant's vice president of intelligence analysis, John Hulquist, told The Hill, quote, They have intelligence requirements that they are tasked with fulfilling, and they are unlikely to be deterred from doing that. That's their job. Until they think that they are not being spied on, Russia's not going to give up espionage. End quote. And finally, 
Yes, we're reminding you that Halloween is almost here. The scary season stats today come courtesy of Divi Cloud. The clouds they see are, of course, of the virtual cyberspace kind, but they can be dark, roiling, and transitional. Organizations, Divi Cloud says, are running 40% of their workloads in the cloud. 89% of them are in various stages of cloud adoption or plan to adopt within the next year. But more than a third of them aren't sure which standards apply to the governance of their organization's cloud and container environments. And who goes into the cloud? The way teenagers in a horror movie go into an empty house? Hello? Hello? Developers and engineers do, and organizations embrace self-service cloud access for them to fuel innovation, the way indulgent adults hope to allow the horror movie teenagers a couple of hours to have a good time. Potential security and compliance complications emerge, the way silent, lumbering, menacing figures do from the horror movie fogs. And are the companies concerned? Yes. Yes, they are. 74% of them say they're moderately or highly concerned about the security of the public cloud. Can you do something about it? Yes. Yes, you can. Following best practices in the cloud and sound digital hygiene are the cyber equivalent of, well, turning the lights on in that dark house, which is even better than carrying some garlic around with you. Pretty scary, kids, so happy Halloween, and again, let's stay safe out there. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. David White is president at cyber risk management firm Axio. 
I caught up with him for insights from their recently published 2021 State of Ransomware report. I think the the top three findings are deficiencies in privileged access management, and the number two is deficiencies in privileged access management, and the number three is probably <laughs> deficiencies in privileged access management. So I think that's um, that's the big finding. Um, you know, we... we we saw in the data, and, and we believe the data, so we believe this data to be better than survey data because this is, these are assessments that people are completing out of their desire to improve their internal preparedness for a ransomware event, which is something we're all concerned about. And so, so we believe the data is very good. On privileged access management, you know, 80% reported that they have not implemented a privileged access management solution or PAM solution, which is a an emerging and important technology for managing privileged access. But I think for me, even more concerning than that is that 63% reported that they have not implemented multi-factor authentication for privileged access. So that sort of first step of, of implementing multi-factor authentication is seems to be a, uh, something that, that a lot of folks are, are missing. Yeah, that that's, I, I guess it's surprising, discouraging uh, that we aren't farther along with that. Yeah, well, I, I think that, look, the, the job of any cybersecurity team is really challenging. And there's a big drive and has long been a big drive in the, in the community to implement more and better technology. And I think what our study indicates is that people are missing some of the basics. And, and we suspect that they may be missing, missing the basics by the drive to continue to implement new technologies. Now, now the, the privileged access management is, runs counter to that. That's part of how we're trying to make sense out of, out of what we're seeing. You know, another big concern with privileged access is, is service accounts. And we found that uh, 64% are not auditing the use of, the use of ser- privileged service accounts. And we know that, you know, sometimes even cybersecurity tools, ironically, cybersecurity, cybersecurity software and tools, encourages teams to implement them using privileged service accounts. But we also know that ransomware attackers have gotten really adept over the past 18 months at pivoting and escalating privilege to secure domain admin credentials. And once they have those domain admin credentials, they can leverage the extraordinary power of Active Directory to amplify their attack, amplify their access, amplify their injury to the organization, and so locking down privileged accounts and service accounts are key controls that, that a large number of folks seem to be lagging on at this point in time. One of the things that struck me as I was going through your publication was uh, you touched on user awareness training and how um, we still have some progress to be made there as well. There's good and bad news there, right? We saw that 50% of people are training, implementing training and awareness programs around phishing and doing anti-phishing tests of, in their organization. But that means 50% aren't. So we're, we're halfway where I think we should be. So based on the information that you have gathered here, what are your recommendations? What sort of things should people be putting in place here? Well, we, we think that uh, clearly folks need to take a very close look at how they're managing privileged credentials. Um, everything from you know, administrator access on user endpoints to those most precious privileged credentials, the domain domain admin accounts. And it, you know, so our number one recommendation is more rigor 
is needed around, around privilege access management. Supply chain risk, as we've talked about, key element. We also found a large number of, a large percent of folks have not uh, implemented a ransomware recovery playbook as part of their incident response. And given that, you know, I think it was ThreatPost who just said that uh, in the first six months of 2021, we've seen 150% increase in ransomware events compared to 2020. So ransomware continues to grow. And one of the keys to limiting organizational impact is recovering quickly. So being able to respond with a competent and prepared incident response team is critical. So it's really important that people develop that you know, incident response muscle for ransomware so they know what to do if, if, if they have that unfortunate day. That's David White from Axio. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast, Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, interesting story uh, from the folks over at Wired. This is written by Sydney Fussell, uh, and it's titled, Borrowed a School Laptop, Mind Your Open Tabs. What's going on here, Ben? So, starting in March of 2020, many school-aged children in the United States had to switch to remote learning. Luckily, most schools are back in person. That's not true for every school, but at least at some point over the last year and a half, Students ages 5 through 18 were required to have a device at home. Mm. Many students who are of greater socioeconomic status had their own laptops, their own private laptops. Their parents bought them. It wasn't a problem. It was a seamless transition. This was not true for millions of students across the country. They did not have these devices. Uh, They would not be able to engage in virtual learning unless they were given a device. So schools were able to provide these devices to young children, which is great. Um, That's the only way they can sustain virtual learning. Right. Unfortunately, what this article uncovered is that many of those devices came with student monitoring software. Mm. Um, This particular software is called Securely, and this software lets teachers see a student's screen in real time and allows the teacher to close tabs if they uh, believe that the student is off task or is not paying attention. And so there was a limitation on how many tabs could be open when uh, schools were employing the software, and they limited it at first to two tabs. So the hook in this article— <laughs> Wait, stop. Well, hold on. Two tabs? Two, two tabs. tabs? Yeah. I don't remember the last time I had a browser open with fewer than— I'm sitting here looking at my browser right now. So 
Mm, two dozen, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an, an insane restriction. And the hook in this article makes it clear. There was a student who was trying to do a social studies research project. Mm-hmm. They were looking at a bunch of different sources. So naturally, the student was opening up a bunch of different tabs. Right. And these tabs just kept closing mysteriously on him. So he mm-hmm. wasn't able to complete his research. Yeah. The upshot of this is, as the Center for Democracy and Technology said, this is creating kind of a two-tiered system. For students whose parents are able to purchase laptops who don't have to use school-issued devices, they uh, have carte blanche as as to the type of research they can do, as to, uh, you know, what they can do during school hours if they're engaged in virtual learning. And students who are of a lower socioeconomic status are being monitored by school administrators uh, or teachers. Hmm. Uh, And, of course, lower-income households are going to be far more likely to use these school-issued computers. And they, you know, are are subject to these surveillance tactics and these tracking tactics. Yeah. I think that is fundamentally unfair. I mean, I think there should be some level of equity between students who are who are issued school provided devices and, and those who've had their devices purchased by their parents uh, or at home. That's a good, reasonable, actionable goal. And I think school systems should think twice about whether it's really worth it to deploy this type of surveillance technology. Uh, whether that's really going to be something that improves the uh, user experience uh, of these students or if it's going to be something that's unduly restrictive. Yeah, and I mean, maybe give the teachers more leeway in in what happens. You know, like if I'm a if I'm a teacher and I see that a kid has a bunch of tabs open, but I can also see that those tabs support the homework that the kid's doing, well, no problem, right? But right. If, but then if I see the kid off task during class— you know, watching YouTube or something, well, then that's different. And, uh, you know, teachers have their hands full, but um, don't. I, I guess don't set the absolutes in the software here. Give the teachers the ability to dial in what works best for them in their classroom and their teaching style. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, uh, I think after this technology was first deployed and they realized that the two-tab limitation was somewhat ridiculous, <laughs> they did make a change uh, to make it a five-tab limitation. <laughs> I think, which is still too low, <laughs> yeah. I think the changes should be broader than that. You know, one of the concerns that's a little bit more significant and goes beyond the technology is we know that there have been inequities in school discipline. We know that students of color, for example, students of lower socioeconomic status are more likely to face suspensions, expulsions. That helps to contribute to what's called the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm. We don't want to create a scenario in which, you know, one student who has a private device, somebody of means who can afford their own device, is goofing off during class and doesn't face any disciplinary action, Mm. whereas the student of lower socioeconomic status who's doing the exact same thing, you know, checking his, his fantasy football team, right, uh, is subject to suspension or expulsion. Yeah. Um, I think that's an end result that we certainly want to avoid. Yeah. You know, interesting just personal uh, anecdote here. My kid uh, is uh, just started high school, and uh, we live in a county that uh, has, uh, you know, good resources, good amount of resources, a well, well-funded community in terms of our school system. And so they provided laptops to kids who needed them. And my son was was all set. He, you know, he already had his own machine, didn't need one. But we had friends in the school system who said, no, please, uh, even if you don't need it, go get that laptop. 
because I guess there's some sort of, uh, you know, use it or lose it kind of thing when it comes to this sort of thing. If they're offering you a free laptop, you take it, right? Well, but I think also it lets them report back that we've we've used these many laptops and so we get funding to support this many laptops and and that sort of thing. So, (sighs) you know, on the one hand, I get it and, you know, we got the laptop and he does use the laptop from time to time, but on the other hand, it's like, I didn't really need the laptop. (laughs) Yeah, now if it's going to be used for monitoring, you know, and and this type of surveillance, some parents are going to be more concerned about that than others. And, you know, I I don't want to suggest that there's no interest in trying to keep students on task. Yeah. I think certainly, especially younger children, there is a governmental interest in (laughs) having proper teacher supervision. Right. My ultimate hope is that this can become relatively moot as we get back into in-person learning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, if if we are going to be in a world of virtual learning, it probably will happen again. I think this is certainly an issue worth monitoring. Um, and I think it's kind of just a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, and, you know, I have friends who are teachers, and they made the point that um, when we were completely virtual – Teachers were not allowed to insist that students turned on their cameras because it's a privacy issue. You, they, you were teachers were not entitled to look into that kid's home. Right? I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I but, mean, I was instructed uh, the same teaching law classes that uh, you know it, it can't affect your class participation grade if you decide to turn off your camera because this is you are potentially viewing something personal when you're looking into somebody's home right um, and you don't know what's going on there right and, and, yeah so yeah uh, interesting times right Ben it sure is we live in <laughs> very interesting times as, as the kids say this might be the worst timeline <laughs> okay. well Ben Yellen thanks for joining us thank you That's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.
Oh, 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 oh,